0: Welcome to the Tech Kitchen podcast, episode two. In this episode, me and Dave discuss, is technical debt actually a bad thing? Do NFT games have to be fun? And is Twitter still relevant? And why is Elon Musk trying to buy it? If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi, Dave. Hey Glenn, great to be here. Great to see you again. Right then. So the first topic I'd like to discuss with you is about technical debt. Is uh, technical debt really a bad thing?
1: Well, certainly it's a it's an undesirable thing. There's been a lot of discussion about technical debt recently. This and these waves of articles and talks about technical debt seem to come every few years, since the 60s, I think. And there's sort of a, a more nuanced view that I wish a lot of people Would take, which is simply that technical debt is a negative thing, but this uh, wholesale elimination of technical debt is kind of a non starter. Both of us, I'm sure, see a lot of clients that are talking about technical debt or fighting it, but how often do we really see a client that has had a business fail due to technical debt or a business uh, succeed because of the elegance of their code? It's very rare. So I think when we look at technical debt, it's not a question of right or wrong or do we care about it but uh, a lever to be pulled. It's uh, something to dial in. I love having conversations with clients about how much technical debt we want to take on to win this race in a startup. At what point does the technical debt uh, start to pose real risk to our revenue, not just theoretical risk? Because I think it's very rare that a startup or any company really fails because of technical debt. There are examples, but... Think of all the projects you've been involved in. How often do you see technical debt as a real factor, a critical factor, as opposed to just operational overhead like everything else?
0: I would say there's different levels of technical debt that exist inside organizations. So... You know, technical debt occurs because developers are moving faster than what is needed to deliver the product in a, like a perfect way. And a typical developer always wants to build things in a perfect way. When I'm coding on my own little projects, there is no technical debt. It's absolutely gorgeous code. The difference is it's not a revenue stream. It's not a business. It's something I'm messing around with. So therefore, it doesn't matter. With organizations, any organization that has absolutely no technical debt has wasted a lot of money. On getting to that point where they could have done it for half the price and just allowed technical debt to exist. And this is why I think technical debt is, um, comes in different levels. You got the, you've got the perfectionist mindset of a developer where everything they look at is like, oh, there's technical debt in here because someone else has written it, which obviously as a technical leader and someone that's experienced, I'd say anyone that's a, a lead developer should be able to identify that and go, Do you know what? It's not that big a deal. Yes. You know, some variable names are different or something like that. But then we go towards architectural debt, service debt, you know, things that are starting to become really crucial to the business and takes an awful lot of time to manage or just keeps on falling down. I've definitely talked to some clients recently where there's so much technical debt where they've broken their services up into like two or three hundred different services that that sits on like 16 different ec two instances and no one knows what anything does you know it's not documented there's this really hard to manage in situations like that is a real issue for the business that the technical debt has got to such a place where it's very difficult to achieve anything without just like trying to get the business to stop with any new feature development and start trying to tackle some of these aspects?
1: So many businesses are in that position. I mean, we see so many startups where they have considerable technical debt that they incurred as a necessity to get where they are because they were in a race. So now we have all these clients coming and saying, yes, we're fighting all this technical debt. It's cumbersome. It's expensive, but we need to move forward. And now they're just spending more money and more stress trying to push through that But it's very rare that I see it kill the client. And so when developers are coming and saying, oh, they're doing it wrong, we need to refactor all of this, there's this kind of utopian theoretical view that if everything is perfect, then everything's gonna be easy in the future. But in practice, startups are pivoting around a lot. And even if the code is beautiful, and I certainly agree, it would be a waste of money to write perfect code, half of those features may not get used. And uh, things are changing around, anyways. In so many ways, it's not that it doesn't matter, but I just see it as a line item. If there's a lot of technical debt, but not so much that it's going to kill the product, meaning excessive downtime or inability to release features that your market really needs, leading to lack of competitiveness. Short of those kind of things, I think it's just a line item. It's like, if you buy a house, in inspection, you find out that it needs a new roof. A lot of people get very stressed out about that and they're shocked. But you could just say, it's just a number. You take the number, it will cost to put a new roof on it, and that's the end of it. There's not much to say. And I think technical debt can be looked at like that because we see so many examples, especially startups incurring massive technical debt and doing very well, like Facebook. By all accounts, the code, the original code at Facebook was such a mess. It was PHP, it was sloppy, tons of technical debt, and they were fighting against that. It was very, very expensive. But not so expensive if you have unbelievable amounts of money. Twitter was a massive mess for many years, and I hear it still is. In the educational and public sector, we see technical debt that seems to be insurmountable and is never overcome, but the businesses are doing really well. Microsoft Windows comes to mind. I mean, So I've started to turn around my entire thinking on it after hearing from so many startups their opinion on it. It's just another form of debt. And to startups, debt, in general, is a way of beating the competition and winning a race to market. Getting funded is a form of debt. A bridge loan is a form of debt. Taking stock options, in a way, is like a debt. You know, it's a future thing. And making a huge mess in development to knock out features is just another form of debt. So I would like developers to be actually a little warmer to taking on technical debt. And instead of trying to avoid it completely have conversations about if we are going to cut corners, and we're going to hard code this crazy thing or this idiotic deployment setup that we've been asked to do, what is the best way? What does a good cowboy do when they're asked to do things cowboy style, instead of just pushing back? And that's my feeling. So I want to embrace some technical debt.
0: Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that organizations need to understand that technical debt will exist inside their platform, otherwise they're going too slow. And... I know developers will come out and say, oh, spaghetti code, I don't want to work with this type of stuff. and only want to work with the cleanest code around. And, you know, the thing is, they'll just be jumping between jobs because they'll soon realize every business has this type of debt in place. And as you say, I think the most important piece is what is the effect on your release policy? If you can't release your code on a regular basis, then you know there's something that you need to tackle because this is going to be an important part for you to be able to deliver your business and deliver your product. So the question is, how do you deal with this problem when you've got developers saying one thing? I mean, if you're in an organization where there is no technical leadership or CTO, developers run the roost. You know, They rule the place and they say, oh, right, we need to do this. We need to rebuild the system. I've left one business a while ago that I know is just rebuilt everything from scratch and it didn't need to be done. And there's still a lot of features missing. So it's just like that was a complete waste of time. I mean, yes, the code wasn't fantastic, but it did the job and it's exactly what it needs to do. And they still have to revert to an older solution for a lot of the uh, work, for a lot of the product features they're dealing with because the new solution doesn't actually work in the way they need it to. So a rebuild is rarely the right choice. Once recently, I have recommended it because it it's such a bad state, but the majority of times, like 95% of times, when I talk to customers and they're concerned about their technical debt, it's not a rebuild solution. It's a refactor as you go and try and make uh, prioritization decisions on what bits you should be paying attention to actually improve.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's very rare that I would recommend that a client rebuild the whole thing. It does happen, though. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when I said rebuild, it was actually more of a case of throw it away and utilize third parties. So that's that's, rather than, you know, replace what you've currently got, because, you know, if this was built 20 years ago, there's solutions out there already that exist that do this job. So it's better to utilize that rather than trying to maintain something that isn't going to be as good, only slightly less customizable than what you have right now.
1: Yeah, that's less rare. When developers are complaining about the spaghetti code, uh, often they're correct. But instead of looking at it in terms of technical debt and how it's going to affect the business, I'm always interested in looking at it in terms of morale and human resources. Because it is true, as a developer, it is wonderful to write brand new code. It's a great feeling. You're at the whiteboard. And you do start with zero technical debt at the beginning. So it's exciting. You're building something new. When you inherit 20-year-old code and you're being asked to slog around in there, terrible documentation, and it's just a mess, and there's been 50 developers there before you, it's not as much fun. So even if there is a good business decision that we're going to maintain this code, and we're not even going to refactor it right now, your job is to fix some bugs and crank out a feature with this awful code base, I see it as a morale issue. And that's very real. So... That comes down to people uh, like us who need to work with the developers, make sure that these are developers that have the patience to do that. And the understanding that eliminating technical debt is not the order of the day. That's not what's happening. They're supposed to work with what is in front of them. But those morale issues are very real. I mean, no developer wants to be not even refactoring, but just working, clunking around in the old code base for their whole career. But too often it's labeled as technical debt that it has to go
0: yeah i mean it becomes a bit of whack-a-mole you fix one thing and something else falls down and when you're hiring or putting someone into that position they need to be aware this is the type of job they do and there are people out there that actually enjoy that they enjoy looking at the stuff and you know make fun of it but you know to get the job done of what you still need to do so but they are where i think the the younger developers have always wanted to use the new thing, clean code, you know, something that they could show off to their friends. So you are the morale issue definitely exists there as well. Yeah.
1: That's why it's so important to share with developers why something is happening. There's not always, yeah. but there's usually a good reason. So why are we doing the deployment in this idiotic way, where if we just took a few weeks, we could clean it up? Hopefully, there's an answer like, because in six months, we're going to radically re-update the whole thing. And we're very interested in doing some demos. And we've got these short-term goals. But it's on the radar. And we know and we're asking you, the developers, to hold it down until we get to this glorious milestone in the future. A lot of developers, if they just know why they're doing it, it'll really help. But not all of them. Yeah, they see a lot at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> some, of them just, some of them just can't do it. You know, they, they need to write new
0: code. Exactly. And just to be completely clear, every developer will always underestimate how much work it is to either rewrite or to refactor some new code. They always will. So whatever they tell you, double or triple it, because it's going to be a lot longer than they think. Oh, yeah. And
1: they will overvalue the good that will come from that. Absolutely. right? It's never as good as it sounds. Okay, wonderful.
0: So let's move on to the next topic then. So this is an interesting area. As we're moving more into the Web3 space as a society, I'd say, NFT games now exist. So let's start off with the question, do NFT games have to be fun?
1: So do you play NFT games at all, Dave? I have played NFT games primarily so that I could understand what the hell is an NFT game? What is it? I just couldn't figure out why an NFT game would exist. I'm confused about blockchain-based games as well. I understand the technology, but I didn't understand how that would fit into a game. So I spent some time playing uh, Alien Worlds and uh, a bunch of time playing Axie with my son, which I think is probably the biggest NFT game and maybe the only really substantial one. There are some smaller NFT games that have like a diehard small community, but Axie is the, the big show. So I love this question. Do they have to be fun? Why are we doing this? Uh, and why are there NFTs? The answer seems to be right now, they don't have to be fun and people are still playing in the same way that a cryptocurrency, a new coin doesn't have to do anything to have value, which is really true. I mean, there's a lot of people trading Dogecoin, which essentially does nothing. And yet everybody's trading on it. And my cynical perspective is that it's mostly about money. People are trading things because they think they're going to sell it at a profit in the future. And in Axie, for sure, what seems to be happening in the game mostly is that people are forming a kind of an economy where there's the trainers who are mostly living in the Philippines and are really enjoying having access to this way to make some money by playing this game, which is quite a lot of work. It's not that fun to be training the Axies. It's like you're training your Pokemon all day to make a bit of money. And then there's these uh, owners who are essentially hiring those people. To do that, to raise the value of these axes that can hopefully be sold, it seems to me more like a kind of a business simulation disguised as a game, but it's doing pretty well. So it doesn't seem very fun to me. What's your experience? Have you tried any of these? I haven't actually
0: played any of them myself, but I know a few of them and I was looking into how some of them work. So there's different types of games out there. Some are like card based games. Others are like, you know, they're NFTs that are upgradable. So therefore you do some activity or you're joining with other things. So therefore they become upgraded and, you know, maybe they can race as horses or maybe they fight each other or something like that you know, technically none of this needs to exist in the blockchain. That can all just be done outside of the blockchain completely.
1: Why does it have to be an NFT? What does it have to do with any of this? Exactly. But, you know, this
0: this is how this industry starts. I mean, the idea of NFTs inside the gaming sector, I think, is incredibly valuable, especially if you could move between games. So if you manage to build up a collection of cars and you can move it into a different game you know that could be really valuable the same thing with like weapons or something like that with cross value of nfts inside games but they're not nft games they're just games that utilize nft in those circumstances the nft games that i've been seeing are you know you hatch eggs was i think there's a wolf and sheep one where essentially you have to mine and you know nine times out of ten it will create sheep and one time out of ten it will create a wolf and if it creates a wolf it'll eat your sheep oh, something like that. Is it Crypto
1: Critters or something like that?
0: Yeah, I think it's that one. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't actually played it, but I've heard about it as well. So, you know, we're so early in the industry. People are messing around. So it's great to see. I don't think, I'm not sure if there's anything out there right now, which I'm going to say is going to be here in 10 years still. But this is, you know, the first few small steps towards that. It's great to see, all you know, businesses, proper businesses, getting into the space, trying to build these types of uh, solutions.
1: But I really agree with what you said about the you don't need an nft to do these things whereas the the idea of um if you're playing just a traditional game right a first person shooter on your xbox or something and you've got some kind of a fantastic outfit or or a dance right and you know in some of those games you do a victory dance or a gun or something and now that item can be uh, put together as an nft with some type of standard and swapped around or sold transferred to other games this is a terrific application for nfts However, it was a total flop. Ubisoft tried to do it. Gamers seem to hate NFTs. I've got a family member who's a hardcore gamer. And let me tell you, gamers do not like NFTs. They're not into crypto. There's a whole culture clash there. I don't really understand. But it seems to be a very good use of NFTs. What do you think about the idea that all of these NFT games have this quietly woven in feature of making money? It's play to earn. It's the idea of you hatch your egg and then it becomes a wolf or whatever happens and now it's worth more and maybe one day you could sell it. I just, I worry that everybody's just trying to make a few bucks. I do also get that impression. Everybody is
0: considering this as an investment of a way of, you know, making financial gain out of this in some way. Where in the old days you play you know GTA Three. You know there's nothing you can do. Is you either complete it or you don't. I don't think I've completed it. Everybody in this space, is active in this space, has an angle. You know they're buying certain coins because they think this game's going to be successful, and this is the currency they use. So therefore, they buy and hold and hope that's going to go up in value. Then they can sell the coins, or they make in NFTs, which they can then hope are going to be traded for more value in future. And I think there will be another boom in this market where people are going to be selling these things and. You know, it's just like the NFT market that we had at the end of last year, a lot of money behind it and, you know, no true confidence that the value is still going to exist in five, 10 years time. It's like everything. I think people are still going to stay in this space trying to make money. I think things are going to fall away. Probably nine out of 10 projects are going to disappear and people are not going to gain anything from it. But I think most people are hedging their bets and you know distributing where they spend their time, so therefore hopefully they 've got something in the one out of ten that does twenty x fifty x whatever the value is, and uh, makes it a worthwhile scheme you know it 's like anyone that was mining Bitcoin or Dogecoin twelve years ago, I was doing that i didn 't mind much, but you know essentially it was fun you know I, I mined Dogecoin I forgot the password because i didn 't think it was actually going to be worth anything and then Elon Musk started talking It took me ages how to recover that password, but it was possible. Um, <laughs> So, uh so, yeah, I mean, wh- where do you see this actually finishing off then?
1: I think you're right that most of it is going to just go away. Most of these things will fail. I also invest in, in crypto uh, in sort of a broad way. You don't really know what's going to hit. And I try to stick to things that have utility. So I don't really do Dogecoin or even Bitcoin looking for things like, you know, I like things like XRP, where there, at least there's some kind of business model behind it. NFTs, I see as a relatively meaningless thing. An NFT game makes no sense to me. It's like a fax machine game. You know, the fax machine is just a medium. How do you make a game out of that? It's not fun. NFTs are a very, very good instrument for moving things around and fractional ownership and all of that. So probably there will emerge a very robust economy of things like you were saying, things that you win in the game and outfits and guns that you can now transfer around or rare if you can play PUBG and wear an outfit that was designed by a famous artist and an influencer wears it, there could be an economy there. But that's not really a game. That's more of a feature. That's kind of a standard. As for the NFT games, I think it is people doing it for the money. And Axie, you know, they got hacked for hundreds of millions of dollars. It's some kind of spectacular hack, which the U.S. government is now attributing to the North Korean government. I don't know about that but it was dramatic and they're now trying to pay everybody back from their earnings which are huge they've taken another 140 million dollars of investment so somebody's believing in this model but what we also saw when that happened was the some wind was taken from the sales of the company and a lot of the people that are doing uh, the kind of labor the training the people that are really there for the money or are making no bones about that are bailing out because uh, they're primarily in the Philippines. So there's price arbitrage. Labor is cheap in the Philippines. COVID is wrapping up, so there's more work to be had. And there's a lot of griping now. It's hard to get people to do the work to enrich these axes so that they can later be sold. And it reminds me of the the Warren Buffett quote, uh, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked, right? So now COVID is sort of debatably going away. There's more work. People need the money less. So there's not as much of a labor market for these uh, employers at Axie to try to make their money. And what do you know? The whole economy is slowing. And we're seeing a lot of griping. So was it a real economy? Was it just a flash in the pan? I'll be amazed if Axie is an important thing in five years. Because if we take out the element of people making money, it's essentially uh, Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) And Pokemon was successful, but that was a card game.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Pokemon's done very well in itself. But yeah, I mean, look, building these things, writing the smart contracts for it is incredibly interesting, but that's a very geeky world place to be. And that's exactly where we were in the original days when blockchain started off and the original days of uh, Twitter and the original days of
1: everything else. As I mentioned Twitter there as well, Uh, obviously- Oh, but wait a minute. Let's answer the question. Do NFT games have to be fun? I will go on record and say, yes. But they won't be. Right now, these are crazy times. So people are playing, but I think that they're not fun and they're not going to be fun. If they're based around NFTs, they're going to go away. But there will be games that will use NFTs, as you described.
0: I'm not convinced NFT games are fun right now. But, you know, essentially, so yeah, do they have to be fun? As you say, I think they will have to be if they're going to stay. So I would say, yes, they do need to be fun. I just don't think we've achieved it yet. But, like I say, I haven't spent enough time playing.
1: Yeah, that was much better stated than what I said. So
0: yes, I think we're
1: in agreement <laughs> though.
0: <laughs> Great. Okay, so yes. Yeah, so just touch on the final topic then. So Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter. Before I ask what you think, so I've got a lot of gripes about Twitter at the moment. I've been asking a few people in my network since uh, last time we mentioned Twitter to to each other. And yeah, everyone goes, it's so difficult to use. It's, uh, you know, and I'm finding those same pains right now. So I'm not sure why someone would want to spend so much money trying to force a sale of Twitter. I could see some financial benefits or personal benefits he's trying to achieve, but the value of Twitter, I think, is very hard to quantify in financial terms due to the value that it brings to just a few small people. So it'd be great to know what your thoughts are of uh, why Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter and whether you think it's still a useful
1: service. I agree that Twitter has this sort of outsized value for what it does. I've heard there's only 300 million active users on Twitter, and a much, much smaller group of actual, like authentic, really active users. There's a lot of media on Twitter, so it is sort of a megaphone. You know, it's a very, very proven way of making noise about a topic and having it amplified to the entire world because there's something about it that media loves. So there is value there, but it hasn't been particularly profitable over the years. It's not a high performer. I don't really know. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. It's mostly hate, but I do hang around on Twitter from time to time, and I don't, I don't love it. So my, I've become pretty cynical about Elon Musk. I'm not an Elon Musk hater, and he's done a lot of amazing things, and he's a certainly a capable person. But um, why does he want Twitter? I think he wants it for the same reason that Donald Trump loved Twitter. I don't really believe that he's doing it for free speech and for kind of libertarianism, which is his claim. He said outright, I don't care about the money. I don't care about the financials. I'm doing it for free speech. He said something like that. And I just don't believe it. I see him to be a very kind of egotistical figure. He likes to make a lot of noise. He likes to kind of go outside the box, bend the rules, certainly with the SEC. And he likes to be heard and Twitter is a great way to be sitting on the toilet, tweeting, causing controversies, flopping around the prices of Dogecoin and just living kind of on the edge. And I really think that's all it is. I just don't believe it. Do you think that Musk would be doing this for free speech for everyone or just for himself? I mean, look,
0: Elon's so hard to understand what his motivation is. He does all this amazing stuff with renewable energy, with, you know, trying to make us a multi-planetary race, you know, he thinks that like a different dimension, you know, essentially, if I ever had to have like a dinner with him, I feel like I'll be, you know, exhausted at the end of it, just from trying to keep up with the conversation than the way his mind works. I would say he is the biggest troll on Twitter as well. I'd say though, he's also the guy that, you know, the SEC are after for, you know, trying to bump up stocks or you know, do things like that. So Oh
1: yeah. He's an epic troll. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The, the Thailand pedophile comment and that whole adventure and on and on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so
0: with that, essentially I know the SEC are trying to stop him from, you know, posting without review and obviously says, oh, I'm not gonna do that. He feels that, you know, maybe if I've got control of Twitter, I'm I'm owning it. They can't say anything to me because I'm, you know, literally I'm just posting on my own platform. So I'm not sure what he would do with it differently. I think I heard somewhere that he's even got his own bots or, you know, just running stuff, you know, to promote himself a little bit. Twitter's this unique creature where, you know, I read, um, what was it, Hatching Twitter, the book, really interesting to see how that, you know, kicked off. And, you know, Jack Dorsey came back as CEO, but he was a part-time CEO. He was, you know, also did he with Square, obviously now Block. And then since he's left, we've now, they've now promoted the CTO. Twitter doesn't need a CTO as the CEO. It needs someone that's more product and, you know, everyday user focused. I mean, I would be a terrible CEO at Twitter because I would just be focusing on technology, not trying to fix the the people problems that it actually has at the moment. So I would say that Elon wants to come in and, you know, obviously start suggesting features and start suggesting solutions of how to make the product work. I think all of us can suggest decent ways, like editable tweets. You know, I think they're releasing that now for if you've got Twitter Blue accounts. I don't know why that's not, available publicly anyway just for the first couple of minutes after you post it you know you don't want to edit tweets that have got 200 likes or something because you know two hundred thousand likes because then you can change it to wherever you want and everyone will look like an idiot but there's just some feature sets there and the way that you find people that's missing and i'm sure that i think i did hear elon musk said you know you look at the top 10 people that are followed and they hardly tweet they hardly use the platform they don't post that much content where people that do post a lot of content are not being promoted to high, you know, not getting more followers. So I think there's definitely a product issue inside the organization. With Elon involved, with his mindset, and, you know, with just a couple of members of his team from Tesla or something with their artificial intelligence capabilities could make a real positive impact to the product. But that's a very positive thinking approach that I'm coming across there. I think he's just using it for his own power. He could
1: also get bored.
0: Yes, exactly. and And just abandon it. Exactly. Just go away and leave it to its own devices. So in short, I don't think he'll buy it. I don't think he'll be able to buy it. I think there'll be way too much pushback. And it's just a load of hot air at the moment that's going along in the press.
1: I agree. I think that he's just toying. Everything is sort of a game, I think, when you reach that level. And he's certainly a high thinker and has done some amazing things. But there is this trend of everything being a moonshot and a sort of a fanciful moonshot. So you're not just starting a space program. You're going to take humanity to Mars. It's a moonshot. It's a Mars shot. It's one step above a moonshot. So when it comes to Twitter, there isn't really a moonshot to be had, right? So it doesn't really fit the way that he works. And the idea of free speech and libertarianism, I just think is laughable. You know, he's trying to push down unions and fooling around and trolling, and it just doesn't really make sense. But what I do see is this, he's sort of branching out from taking businesses And building them up, you know, I mean, essentially he buys businesses and does these amazing things. So I see him a little bit like a Steve Jobs figure in many ways. And that's fine. I'm happy with some of the work that he's done. But now we're talking about kind of social work, public sector work, free speech, right, constitutional discussions, politics, libertarianism, things like that. And I find that to be incredibly dangerous. I think that's an extremely bad idea. I think if he was an American citizen, he would already be campaigning for president. He is not Donald Trump. But in this very narrow context, I do see his tweets and the way he behaves very much like Donald Trump. I think he's very, very good at using Twitter as a megaphone. He's got this fanboy culture around him. So having him even talking about free speech and anything like that or how the SEC should work or anything scares the crap out of me. And I, I just immediately feel like, no, it's too much. I don't want it. I don't see him as a pillar of ethics. And it could be argued that he is a he is a white man, 50 years old, that came from money, even though there's it's been disputed, but by most accounts, he grew up with plenty of money and opportunity and had sort of a moonshot father. And here he is doing moonshots. So Does he really know about free speech, right? I mean, does he look at the damage that social media has caused to the world? It's substantial. And these are very complicated. You know, there's a lot of subtleties and law and all kinds of stuff. I don't know if I want Elon Musk in that conversation. I don't know if he's qualified to be there. And uh, I hope he does not get any control of Twitter. And I don't understand why the SEC is not taking him to task for not reporting his 5% ownership earlier than he did. I mean, it's essentially a fraud. I'm not a lawyer, but from what I can tell, if he wasn't Elon Musk, I think he might be uh, facing charges. If I had this
0: type of money, I'll be doing the same thing because you know you can get away with it. I would too. (laughs) 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 That's true. Okay, right, so we should wrap it up there. It's been great talking to you again, Dave. You're gonna
1: wrap it up on that rant? Oh my God.
0: You know, I still love you, Elon. Don't worry if Dave doesn't. uh... I like you, Elon. (laughs) No love. Just in case he buys us. <laughs> so enough. yeah, okay. Thank you all for listening to us today. If you uh, you know enjoy the conversation, please subscribe and uh, do check us out on TechKitchen.io. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, Glenn. We'll see you next time.